If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to another episode of Remap Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is episode 14 for September 1st, 2023. Today, as always, we have Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klopek. Hi. And Renata Price. Howdy. As always, we are a listener-supported show. If you enjoy Remap Radio and wish to become a supporter, you can learn more at remapradio.com. Our website has links to our memberful page where you can sign up for monthly or annual plans that give you access to exclusive Remap content. Exclusive. Uh, now, let's get into, well, the big topic. I guess this week is Starfield. Before we talk about Starfield, we should probably talk about talking about Starfield and some of the <laughs> what review we're discourse. we talking about when we talk about Starfield. Yeah. Uh, some of the, some of the discourse around the game and some of the stuff that's emerged about how review copies were issued or not uh, in, in the run-up to, to launch. Uh, Patrick, catch us up on like the, the sort of the, the two... The two tracks of this, right, which is like partly it's weird online discourse, but then also it looks like the entire Eurogamer family of websites got blackballed. Well, wow. uh, yeah, there is a yeah, I think there's like a couple things happening. Um, this is going to be one of the biggest games of the year, sort of regardless of quality, right? Like a new Bethesda release is about as big as a game comes these days. Um, and. I think tied up in a lot of anxiety over folks who have invested in like the Xbox ecosystem. If like that, that that's the machine you own it has been several years of pretty subpar like software output tied to about a decade, pretty subpar software output from from Xbox post Xbox 360 really. Uh, and Starfield, I think, has taken on this enormous weight of. This is the pivot point. Like, this is something that Phil Spencer, like, all these folks have been working towards, like, between their acquisitions and new studios. Like, th this, like, this is, this is the, the sins of the Xbox One are finally being shed, and a game like Starfield is what this all has been moving towards. And so I think it's put just an enormous amount on a singular game alongside Sony, like, however you think about the games that they typically put out sort of like cinematic, highly polished, uh, highly uh, 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 like uh, action adventure games, like very story driven. Um, it's brought them a lot of success. I think there's just there's a lot of anxiety over the air over like 
what does Starfield represent to video games, to Xbox, to folks investing in that? And that has created a, a really horrible uh, environment uh, in which you've seen the equivalent of gamer warfare over every little leak that has come out as uh, in many ways, Microsoft has been very generous with distributing access uh, to Starfield. Little wee little remap was able to get two two codes uh, uh, quite easily to play it for the last couple of weeks, which is which we'll get into. Um, and then you've and then you've had uh, it's kind of along all all of this, uh, you know, a number of it seems UK specific uh, websites, uh, most notably uh, the Guardian, Eurogamer, uh, not getting access to. Uh, Starfield ahead of time. Um, and uh, Eurogamer then feeling compelled at a certain point to publish a piece that was, I think, very politely explaining if you were expecting us to have a lot of day one coverage of Starfield alongside basically everyone else, especially because Eurogamer, like we've talked about many, many times on this podcast, has an enormous guide section. A huge part of what Eurogamer does, other than being like one of the better like mainstream old school publications, like your gamer, like you could do much worse than just reading them on a daily basis. They put out a lot of really good shit. I, um, uh, they're, they're a great website. And so explaining why they're not going to have a review or an in-progress review and especially any guides content, uh, day and date, uh, well, I think was a very reasonable. Um, but you know, this, the, the notion of, uh, entitlement from the press, uh, like uh, this, this uh, sort of like toxic Xbox-driven discourse that that has been happening, like is all intersecting all together. And like most specifically weird about what happened with Eurogamer was that Digital Foundry, again, like people don't always associate with Eurogamer, but that is a companion to Eurogamer. It was a section of Eurogamer that started doing technical analysis of video game performance and like graphical fidelity. Uh, that has now become kind of its own publication, um, known beyond its connection to Eurogamer, was given a code through Eurogamer to pass to Digital Foundry, but told that no one at Eurogamer could use it, and it could only be used by Digital Foundry for their sort of technical analysis. But they also do podcasts with impressions, and so it gets it gets muddy very quickly. Um, Eurogamer signed off on that and was like, "Look, like people really look forward to what Digital Foundry has to say." Uh, about a game when it's released. So this feels weird, but we're going to let it go. And then they write this piece, I think, to explain how weird all this is. About an hour later, Bethesda ends up, uh, or Microsoft or whoever, there's lots of third-party PR firms. Like, it gets very complicated. It's never as simple as Microsoft, Bethesda. Like, like we did not get a code from Bethesda. We got a, we got a code from a third-party PR firm called 47. Like, it all, it goes up and down org charts. Um, but there seemed to be something where after Eurogamer noticed uh, or noted they were not going to really get a uh, an early access to the game, a lot of other UK outlets, um, like notably, like I said, The Guardian, you know, very respected places that are, you know, by most accounts, even-handed, interesting, thoughtful, uh, were also not getting uh, access to the game. Why that is, I think is so far. Edge also noted, like Edge, like the pinnacle of like <laughs> UK gaming, uh, sort of like criticism and coverage. Um, their their covers are important. Uh, <laughs> did not get access to the game uh, early, and so that all ties in. And we can get into it. Like Rob, I'm sure you've heard over the years, Bethesda as a company, spiteful, um, 
holds a grudge. Uh, they are a company that will tell you to your face, virtually and in person, uh, they're unhappy with how you cover their games uh, and will subsequently withhold early access uh, as as a result. So that, I think, sets a lot of the stage of where we arrive at. There are all sorts of rabbit holes we could go down from there, but I think that that, that sets up for large distractions from just talking about, like I said, one of the, the biggest games of the year. Yeah, it, what, what one thing I find funny here is that they were, Bethesda wanted to make sure that Digital Foundry wasn't left out and that people got their Digital Foundry coverage, which is often where if you're just focused about like consumer reception of stuff and, and sales, the odds of Digital Foundry not taking a hammer to to a Bethesda release in some ways are, is very, very low because Digital Foundry is speaking directly to the polygon counters and like shader connoisseurs out there. The people who are like, you know, does this going to justify my Series X? And I <laughs> and we I don't think- associate Bethesda with technical like we associate with many things, but them having buggy releases like technical competence, like is it's a meme at this point. Like it's like how we talk about the studio. So that is a very, it speaks both to the profound influence of Digital Foundry and in theory, like a confidence from a studio over what they're presenting to the public. Because why else would why else would you give it to Digital Foundry unless you were hoping for a good grade? And I don't fully know where that confidence would be coming from. Like it's not that, <laughs> like I'm not sitting here. I'm saying like you know we played. I'm not saying like. It's a bad looking game by any means, but no. uh, it's a Bethesda game in in a lot of ways. And so mm-hmm. I think some of the one of the things I think that defines Bethesda games is that they're not out there in general on the cutting edge of graphics tech and like rendering uh, tech and, and pushing engines like to that. Well, they're, they definitely push engines uh, to and past their limit. Uh, but. <laughs> They are not like that's not that's not the sales pitch with with games like this. You're you're sort of getting a, a, a great degree of scale and then trading away some fidelity. But Digital Foundry are the people who are like, let's really drill in on fidelity and, you know, performance. <laughs> There's meters. If you've never watched one of these because you don't care about this stuff and I don't, but I've still watched their videos every once in a while because they're exceptionally well made and can give you sort of a language for how to talk about the technical side of things, which is what I find interesting. But like you're watching analysis with like three different graphs going up and down. Like you're watching a heartbeat monitor as like you think about the poor programmers for this game that were rushed to ship something. No, my lock 30. You see the meter go down. No, bring the frames back. And so, the DLSS is the, the, the defibrillator that's coming out yep. to, to revive. Like, come back, get back to sixty. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, it's just it's it's kind of funny. That this is this is also the 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 weird uh, the weird line they drew. I think it's it's also just a it's a it is a weird thing. Um, you know, if you I try not to look too much at social media discourse because it tends to elevate just the worst and most tedious people, and so. Especially you, right now, right? Yeah, and you a do lot see of blue, the, a lot of blue the reflexive, getting. like, oh, there's the entitled press acting as if they deserve copies of Starfield. Uh, outlets like your gamer, like, they can afford to buy their own copies. Like, it's, it, you know what it is? It's the blue check discourse. Mm-hmm. The reason Eurogamer should get a copy of Starfield is that 
a Eurogamer reviewer and a Eurogamer reviews editor can do their job because they will produce something that is like relevant and really good and interesting. The reason, you know, random Twitter commenter, you know, uh, Xbox fucker 420, <laughs> like the reason they don't deserve recently unbanned after being banned for four years. But then thanks to Elon Musk <laughs> has been allowed back on the platform. Welcome back. Xbox fucker 420. Yeah. The reason they don't deserve like a free copy is because they're going to buy it and they're not going to produce anything interesting from having access to it. And it's not gonna be relevant to anyone. So that's, that is the difference. This is, this is, this is not sort of a, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, this is not like the press being like, Oh, these are the elites who get access to the stuff. It's, you know, there is a, there's a service they are capable of providing and your game is going to provide that service, whether or not Bethesda, uh, provides the copy the way this screws the outlet is that they're not they're going to miss out on a lot of the traffic bump that comes there from being day and date with uh some guides content and review content i mean right, and that's that's oh go ahead run i was just gonna say like n- not being day one with guides content is like really bad in an seo like an S- completely seo driven like space like like guides content or like primarily seo driven space like guides content like if you're not first in the door and you're starting on the back foot, like it's so easy to lose what would would have been a pretty good guides placement, like top top three, to like, oh, suddenly you're at the bottom of a page. And, and like this no has to have gotten worse with the like rampant plagiarism and like guides content SEO chum that goes out there. Cause now in those intervening days, the people who are first through the door are getting cribbed right and left mm-hmm. by shittier outlets or you know pages that just like well, exist to farm these clicks uh, yeah it's it's guides content is the easiest thing on earth yeah. to plagiarize i mean again it's it's the same it's the classic problem uh like that faces like cartography as an industry is that like you can't actually copyright the knowledge of how to do a thing or like the data set itself or you can sometimes copy data sets but um but what you can't do but what you can do is like copyright design uh, and the actual like words of the thing uh, or like the the construction of a map, and so what you would do would be, you know, the process of putting paper towns in in maps would be like a, a copyright trick to be like, oh, we got you. The problem with copyright tricks like that, which are on display in guides writing, guides writers do leave copyright tricks like that. Uh, the problem is that it requires litigation uh, for those copyright tricks to actually matter, uh, and the problem is that plagiarism for guides writing is so easy and happens so much that there is basically no way to like properly litigate it. And so there's like nothing you can do other than be first in the door yeah. on these on on stuff like this. And if you're not, well, <laughs> get fucked, I guess. Well, and the wild thing is like the land grab has already happened, right? So yeah. while I can say that I, I I talk about this in these Starfield diaries that you'll hear at the end of the podcast that Rob and I did. We'll set that up a little more later. But um like I didn't understand how something worked and I was trying to find some video footage on it to see if I could like in the like wa- like video walkthrough, I could kind of work out with how the mechanic worked and I could work backwards in the game. Um, and there was already somebody had written a guide based on how they think it worked from the video so that when someone says like, how does lock picking work in Starfield, which is what I was looking up, they were like, well, we're pretty sure it works this way. <laughs> and like right now you, you search Starfield guide on Google, you get PC games N and it says Starfield walkthrough tips and how to guides. There's nothing there. But they've got that SEO, like, number one ranking, like, already. And it's like, that goes to show, like, like there are, 
Um, and I've learned this more acutely since we started Remap, where your relationship with getting access to games changes when you, like, sort of lose the prestige of a, like, well, I, 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 I hate to say that about something like Vice, but it does mean <laughs> something to PR people, right? Like, right. however corrupt and awful that that organization is, like, it means something when you say, I work for Vice. Um, and when you just say, I work for crowdfunded, like, remap, uh, you know, radio, like, you know, I have a lot of relationships in the industry. I'm still able to more or less get what we need in order to feel like we're doing our job and serving our viewers and, and listeners. Um, but PR people sometimes just say, eh, like, we did our homework. Like, we know you don't really like these kinds of games or you said something about it in some pre-release stuff. Like, they don't tell you that, but, like, that's why you don't get the code ahead of time. And, like, that kind of is their job, is to do targeted marketing in order to pump up the numbers and the discussion around a game. But once you start getting into revoking access, not because you are worried that the reviewer assigned to it has a negative opinion about previous titles and thus is going to probably carry that forward or could carry that forward. Like once you get into revoking things that the guy, like codes are given out on different levels, right? They're given out for reviews and they're specifically given out for guides writing. Like you will see this in PR emails. They're like, let us know what you need for podcast streams, editorial. Let us know what you need for guides. And so by doing a blank, like a blanket, like no code access, you are, they know the economics, like depriving Eurogamer of like an ability to make money uh, that is probably foundational to the economics of their publication uh, that goes beyond just like writing a critical analysis of whether the big space game is any good. And it's also, I don't know, like I'm, I'm always of two minds. Like on the one hand, uh, there is a bit of, uh, like people have to uh, like respond to the dictates of their job and the the things that are intrinsic to the nature of that job. Like, yeah, I understand. Like, you know, PR has to try to massage like what the initial reception of a game is going to look like, or you know, they at least have to to make the effort. Uh, but but at the same time, I think the the thing I've increasingly found funny about this is that. I am not sure the I'm not sure how influential reviews are anymore. Like it's been a pretty pointed effort to make reviews less influential mm -hmm. and lean into uh, what used to be called new media and is now just, you know, media uh, and, and, and platform uh, platforms under media. But like, I don't think this is not this is not like the the 2000s or the 90s where it's like, oh, if a bunch of the magazines you know, go thumbs down on a game that could sink, that could significantly sink the game or, or, or really damage it. Like a lot of these things have sort of been review proofed just by the sheer marketing spend behind them and the, mm -hmm. the scale of the thing. And so in, in a weird way, like the, this particular game also just feels like really vestigial pettiness because it is not like, even for smaller games, I'm not sure reviewers have to like, even for smaller games, I think PR people are happy that people are just going to be talking about a game because it's so hard to break through right now that if anyone's actually mm -hmm. doing review of something, whatever that review says, it's like, oh, well, at least it, you know, at least we got some coverage and, and some notice uh, with games like Starfield of that of that scale. It's not like if you're a gamer went out there and were like, 
this game sucks. It's a they don't do scores anymore. Uh, but like if they if they just went out there and they they torched it and they gave the equivalent of a one, I don't know that that moves any needle. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a needless from from the standpoint of PR needs to like control the narrative around these things. I don't know that this it fulfills any useful function anymore. It's just kind of a, a buy. It's like a vestigial byproduct of a departed era, and in a weird way now it. Right on the eve of release, it did change the narrative for the worse, right? Because it became the story then became why is Bethesda being cagey with review access to this in ways that are going to affect outlets? What's what's the point of doing this? Well, I mean, this, this is also is Bethesda not also like the company that famously denied Obsidian like a bonus, like bonus payout for Fallout New Vegas over Metacritic store scores. That's everybody though. Right. No, 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 it is, is. it is, it is. That wasn't, that wasn't me like trying to call out Bethesda. That was me trying to point out that like, uh, review scores have historically mattered insofar as like to like, not even just in terms of sales, but in terms of like internal optics and like, how do you Mm -hmm. measure success in an industry that like is not always easy to measure like instant, like success with some, with some games. And so like, you know, there there is a utility to holding something back if you if you're worried about like a score. Like I I, I see the the business utility in that, even if I think it, it sucks. Um, is is there a chance there's something else going on here? A lot of times PR stuff gets farmed out for other markets, right? Like a well, lot that's of what times I, that's what I was saying. That's right. why I, yeah. I I think there 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 it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that like something up here does not add up. Um, is there an axe being grinded every, for someone else? For some, like, like everyone I know is playing this game. Not every, right? Like, I'm not saying like everybody who wanted a code got one, but there are part of the game that happens when codes are going out is PR people don't listen when you put in your emails like don't tell your colleagues that you got it. Like a lot of them are because they're trying to figure out like, do I need to send an email? Do I need to send a follow-up? Like, am I on that first wave? Am I on the second wave? Everyone's just broadly trying to figure out what am I doing this week? What am I, how am I splitting up my time? Like how am I hitting my marks in terms of what I do for my job? And this game was, we didn't have to ask. Like they reached out to us. It was very easy. Because I really didn't think just like, we're just not to do like I'm just a small bean, but like <laughs> remap isn't we're not vice anymore. We're, we do a podcast that's got a decent listenership, but like it's not the sort of thing where I'm like, oh, yeah, they want to get. Oh, no, yeah, they want to come to Starfield in right, front of remap. Right. right. And it's hard to tell, like, where does like existing relationships like begin and they're being generous with trying to hand out early access to a lot of people. And but I a lot of people I know are playing this. It did not seem like they were being uh, lax with giving out access to this. Like a lot of people have been playing this and it hasn't been selective waves of people. Um, a lot of people basically got access to it about two weeks ago. And like we're encouraged to say that you like when they're being selective about who's getting it, like really selective, they say, don't tell people you have it. Like the Starfield review code came with, Hey, buddy, blast that out on social media that you got access to this, right? And part of why they ask you to not tell people is because they don't want the emails that say, like, hey, hey, Jeremy, I I heard the codes of distribution has begun for, like, the new Star Wars game or whatever. Like, what's the, you know, where, where do we rank in that? And for here, they know that by saying, people saying they have code, they are going to get inquiries from other people about the possibility of getting code if they were not 
um, on that that like first like wave that um, that went out. And so it just doesn't add up that the UK specifically like Bethesda again, Bethesda like has a history of holding grudges against outlets. That is that 100 percent a fact. Do I think that they just like have this very specific problem with like the the UK? Right. Like it's something, it really feels like something like, and what the strangest part about this, which I think points towards us just not knowing something. um, So in the piece from Eurogamer, um, Tom Phillips was their EAC writes throughout the past two weeks, which lines up with Rob and I and many other people getting access to the game. Since copies of the game were made available to the media, I spent hours trying to discuss the issue with Bethesda, and the matter has been repeatedly flagged to both Bethesda and Microsoft at senior levels. Uh, I've been told that you're, I've been told Eurogamer will receive a copy at some point. That usually means you're going to get it on launch day. Uh, but even if this happens today, we are now well past the point of being able to appraise such an enormous RPG at the same time as other outlets this week. Obviously, I think Tom knows more than what he's saying here, um, but it also just does kind of point to a general confusion over... Like a lot of people being like, I don't know what's going on here. And then the fact that they published this and then an hour later, I mean, your gamer wrote it in the bit an hour after the publication of this blog, they were, they were provided code it's, um, by Bethesda, which it's like sometimes like what, what breaks a weird log jam is a little bit of public pressure. And that is appears to would have happened here, but it, it really does strike me as, something weird and different <laughs> that like we're unaware of was going on here that goes beyond uh, a pre-existing pettiness towards certain outlets or certain writers. Um, and it's just something that I don't know. We'll know the full story on feel free to DM me. I won't say it on the podcast. I'd love to know, well, <laughs> but uh, uh, it seems like something weird happened here. It is like Patrick. I did hear like, Oddly enough, I did hear a little bit about this before it broke and like mm, juicy. But the thing was it unless unless someone was just like really being cagey about like what they knew, it seems like within the Eurogamer house there was genuine confusion about like we don't fully understand what's going on here. Like we did like mm. it is not like if there was supposed to be a message, this is like the sort of the horse's head, <laughs> except the, instead of the horse's head, uh, it's like absence of code. But like if this was supposed to be a message like, uh, you know, based Phil didn't like what you said about the uh, the acquisition or something like that. Uh, and we're going to do the same thing when Hexen comes out. Like, no, if this, no. If, this, if this was the message, I think the message got lost because genuinely it sort of seems like within the, the, the Eurogamer, uh, you know, offices and the extended the, the, the extended family websites. It was kind of a well, this is weird. And then the Guardian being caught up in it as well. It just gets very bizarre. And edge, like, right? Edge, edge, yeah. edge. Uh, like that's about as prestige old school as you come. I mean, there are instances where the studio is sending a message, right? Like. Uh, Kotaku has been actively blacklisted from Bethesda ever since Jason Schreier did reporting on the existence of Fallout 4, um, I believe related to getting access to like voice actor call sheets or something like that. And that plus some other stories like Bethesda essentially deleted Kotaku from a list of outlets that they, they work with, which is their prerogative. Like I, can I think that is silly? I can. Is it, their decision to to make that that choice absolutely as well, but that's followed Stephen Totillo 
So he no longer he he was EIC of Kotaku at the time when that occurred, uh, and then has been at Axios for a couple of years now. And noted when uh, while uh, discussing what happened to, to Eurogamer here that they've also been like in communication blackout with Bethesda, uh, like even despite switching outlets, like different format of kind of reporting. So like the pettiness follows, right? Mm-hmm. Like it it, it goes. Um, it just. Usually it's specific, right? Like you did, this was the, this transgression, not like I I spun a world map and decided to choose violence against the The UK UK. today. Well, are there any characters in the game that are really mean uh, to British people? Like a, like a real, like, like a real, like, like style character that I'd like. I hope I get a robot that does that, but I haven't found one yet. Damn it. And like, it's, are there, are there smaller places that got, code in the uk at all that we've heard like i mean it might be harder just because they're not yeah i can't speak to i mean like a lot of people responding to it that worked out there it seemed did seem broad Broad. that like that it was not going to a lot of places in that region which to me sounds like an external pr firm fucked up fucked up or some fuckery like like choose your version of the f word there the only other Um, thought i had was like it's the CMA stuff. Like, been, is this just like, look, like you have the CMA in the UK and you're messing with our closing I this mean, deal with Activision I wasn't Blizzard? Gonna, I wasn't so gonna, no code for you? <laughs> I wasn't going to go there because it feels like that feels like a jump. The one like cons- like red line conspiracy thing I just thought was like, has it been long enough that s- people have moved around to a lot of different places that like if an individual person is now working at a bunch of different like it's just like there was a spread out of like certain yeah. people that yeah, like a few, a few of the names could popped up at all the outlets. Like exactly. there's, a, there's a few names that connect all the outlets. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> but at the same time, like the way that the, that Steven got followed from outlet to outlet. Is it possible? Right, there's right. some, sometimes you just of... have to burn the forest <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to prevent a couple, uh, a couple writers from, from getting access to, to the code. I don't know. Ridiculous, it is, yeah. it, it is a weird thing. Uh, I am, I'm really curious who was hand what firm was handling it over in the uk because like uh i worked enough with uk outlets that like because if you go to events the if you were with an okay uk outlet you get handled by whoever's handling uk pr not the general pr so you're, you're like it is there is usually a firm tapped to lead the effort in that market or at least assist and so i am just really curious like which firm was handling mm-hmm the starfield account in the uk just because you know the the conspiracy theory that i sort of wonder about is is this a firm paying off accounts uh for like some slights uh using mm. starfield the biggest game i'm at like the one of the biggest games of the year is it just a uh right like yeah. what if yeah, this is maybe. all really petty like intra uk <laughs> like <laughs> now i've got you because i've got the starfield uh you know the starfield account i don't know it's it's a it's a weird one um but i think you know we might as well dig into the game i mean let's talking about the lack of review access uh that some folks got like do we think you know patrick i think you and i are both still working through our feelings on this. And as you alluded to, people are going to hear us talk more about this, but like does Bethesda have stuff to worry about with regards to how people are going to greet Starfield? Not 
like top level like no i don't i i i I don't there's nothing about the 23 hours of this game that i have played which i have complicated feelings about but none of which like immediately come to mind and be like oh like i could see why they were trying to dodge some bullets like there's nothing here i think some people are going to adore this game i think some people are going to be ambivalent i think some people are going to especially in the light of a Baldur's gate 3 go why are we making RPGs like this anymore? I think the full <laughs> spectrum of responses are going to be applicable to this game. But hey, look, famous last words, uh, because uh, saying anything about your individual experiences between and then even collective with your colleagues saying like, like how much of a Bethesda ass Bethesda game is it in terms of like technical like bugs and stuff like that? Look, will a character ever look directly at you when you talk to them. That is a 50-50 proposition. You're going to spend most of this game having characters... I'm going to try and simulate this for... The, do for, the sexy over-the-shoulder thing, Patrick. They all do. Do the little, like, oh. Hey! Mm-hmm. Yep. So, well, welcome to... So, right now, I'm turning Sorry, my listener, back to, Patrick is presenting. Hi, hey, welcome to the space space farm. Uh, we got your guns. They're slowly and, bring it around. Let's go your guns. It's guns and your arm, your armor. Too far, too far. Go, uh, um, back back to, okay, now we're squared um, up. I got a good speech um, on that. Uh, <laughs> and there's and there's a lot of that. Um, um, but that is, I like. I've had no crashes. I've had. Uh, well, that's not true. Uh, um, I had a pre-release uh, crash on the Xbox that happened with a, a certain amount of frequency that only happened where, in going into uh, shutting down my Xbox and then quick resuming. Like the instance would crash, but this game quick save is all the time. Like all the time, you go into a door, quick save. You are never losing progress and in this it game. Keeps those auto saves. Like it's it you do- can oh, go it's through the rolodex of like. So when is Dude, the last this is moment a- before this got really fucking annoying? This is old school <laughs> PC. Like I have hundreds of quick saves, and it it like fill up that hard drive, baby. Like I love I love this. Like uh, this is what I live for. Um, but uh, that was patched in um, uh, like a pre-release patch that we got access to. I've not had that. I like that happened a handful of times my first 10 hours. It's not happened in the like 15-ish since. And that has been other than like kind of some weird frame rate drops that I've had in instances that don't make a lot of sense. It's not like a city's loading. Mm. Um, it's just sort of the game hitches weirdly. Um, I don't know. Like that. No, Rob, like that's a long way of saying like. I don't think Bethesda had anything to fear. They have made the game, they have made four decades, and now they made it in space. And you can sort of read into they, that. Is it is it how spacey does it feel? I guess uh, now now I'm burning other pod, the other conversation uh-huh. we're gonna have. But that's okay. We, I mean, we can. I don't yeah. know if everyone's gonna listen. Like that's gonna be like there's a whole second podcast. There's gonna be like two and a half hours Over of time. detailed Star Starfield talk. They, they like. That that basically what Rob and I did was we record we recorded a series of three podcasts at various points of our and kind of like the impression cycle of the hours into the game that are like real nitty gritty on like hey man like how, how does this interface work and stuff like that that we that we get into but um well it illuminated that yes we do talk about that in the post show but like you do have a point about like I think broadly yes they made a Bethesda game in space. And then you can quibble on what that means, which I think is what you're getting into here. Rob, the question I have for you is, was that spaceship building they showed smoke and mirrors? No, that okay. is real. 
Now, I am not sure there are as many Lego pieces. I, so I've not gotten far enough with the game to see how many Lego pieces there are. In the initial places you go, the number of things you can buy for your spaceship is really, really limited. Uh, now, there is... Okay, so let's let's step back a little bit. I'm sure this is not going to surprise anyone about what Starfield is, but it is, it is a Bethesda-ass Bethesda game, but it is also Bethesda from Fallout 4 onwards, like mm-hmm. Bethesda, which is we are really now leaning into the big open-world story RPG stuff is like, that is what you come and pay your ticket for. But the thing that keeps you in the amusement park is the crafting and the side quests and all that stuff. And the crafting now really unfolds along a few different axes. Obviously there's the, there's a lot of like customizing a weaponry and there's an entire progression system attached to this. If you go to uh, little research stations in your, in your spaceship or your base, you feed it crafting materials and that unlocks the ability to craft other stuff. So you unlock the tech tree, uh, which is also tied to your progress through the uh, skill tree as you level up. And so the thing is, in those initial places you go, when you go to different vendors, the stuff that's there is not very interesting. It's like the archetypes are there, but they're all like gray quality mm-hmm. and they don't do very much. And that extends to ships. You know, you go, there's a few ships on sale. There are, uh, you know, modules you can put on your ship and there's new, you know, upgraded weapons. But uh, it does look to me, Ren, like there's a fair bit of ship customization you can do. Because the cool thing is when you dig into how ships are put together, they're all built of the same common building blocks. And so even though you have like, you'll have like huge uh space semi trucks basically they're just hauling massive cargo containers around then you'll have like uh big flying carrier gunship type things if you break them apart in the crafting in the in the shipbuilding menu you you can break them down and see like oh these are both made of common parts like these are the same things that they are sort of snapped together out of it's just that now they have completely different characteristics based on how they've been assembled and their flight dynamics uh so like it turns out it is not smoke and mirrors and it won't be too long before you start thinking about like, I sure wish my ship was different and making your ship different, but doing it badly will have a palpable effect uh, in, in the game. Mm. Uh, it's, it's more like if you build a ship badly, uh, it will maneuver really poorly in dogfights. And since the dogfights are mostly like turn until the enemy is in front of you and then shoot them a lot. Uh, if you can't turn for shit, that's a big problem. That is that is a debilitating uh, issue. And so if you're sitting there getting greedy about, like, I wish my ship could carry more crafting materials around so I could progress through this game faster. So I'm just going to, like, strap a bigger cargo hold to it. It's going to suddenly make your somewhat nimble, uh, you know, uh halfway between a fighter and a and a hatchback it'll suddenly make that feel uh like like you are you are driving uh in an overladen like transit van so it's not like that stuff is not that stuff is not fake uh and i suspect that it gets more interesting as you go through more of the tech tree that you can unlock because when you go to your base building menu one of the things you would unlock is yeah you get your landing pad for your ship so you can just like stat like Go straight to your base and land your ship there and not have to hoof it across the planet's surface. But there's also a thing you can build that's like shipyard. And I suspect once you're at the point where it's like, I'm putting down a shipyard, 
I would bet you that there's also a ton of stuff now you're crafting that like you can't get from the vendors that is to truly now kit out uh, exactly the kind of ship you want. Got it. And you can have multiple ships, right? You don't uh, you're not uh, you're not limited to a, a and multiple single bases. ship and multiple bases. So you can depending on what you're doing, you know, you could like, hey, I'm doing a, I'm I'm doing some of these missions that are kind of just like hauling cargo and I'm going to go find contraband. Like you can imagine taking your space trucker on that. And another one where it's like, Hey, I've got to go do a, uh, uh, I uh, fight some pirates. Like I want something a little more nimble, um, in order to, to do that. Right. My question is that, but to be a space trucker has a very particular vibe to cultivate space trucker energy requires like some, some real like affective power, at least to me, because it's really easy to try to go for space trucker and end up just being super boring. And I guess like my question is that like, do, is that happening? Like, are, are like, are, are y'all like enjoying the differences between these things? Or is it mostly like, uh, I just got to swap in the other thing that feels mostly the same other than like its utility. I, think I haven't changed my ship. I haven't touched it. Okay. <laughs> I've, up, I've upgraded a, like the weapons and the cargo stuff. Uh, I think because Patrick you don't a little more closely to critical path. And I, I have. So we get for some, this. for some things that I found, Rob, that I later discovered we cannot talk about. Um, and I am genuinely shocked that there is a thing that happens altogether early in the totality of what is a very long type that out to me in the before i say anything further just drop that in the private dm uh real Uh, quick i'll Uh, just i'll just write this word um okay yeah Uh, can't can't say it you can't say that word or can't say it can whatever. So what a stupid the shit. thing. So I, I will say this, and here here's some advice for folks who are getting into this, and uh, <laughs> if you end up playing this, play the story. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, one play the story for a while uh, before you start messing with crafting stuff, because the resources the story begins dropping on you vastly outstrip what you can accomplish through crafting and harvesting early in the game. Uh, but the other thing is, and I guess, you know, if you're an old hand at Bethesda games, maybe this is all familiar to you. But me, ad- like someone, you know, full of admirable thrift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> if there are valuable, if there are valuables lying around on the ground that have a sell price attached to them, that seems pretty substantial. Oh, no. I'm going to grab those. No, Rob. <laughs> and they put so many in these games. <laughs> it turns out that, yes, in addition to the encumbrance of your character. Now you can, well, you can't really overload your ship, but your your ship is effectively a flying locker with limited space. <laughs> All your companions, walking lockers with limited space. You can hit a max, though. Like, that's like, you can, it's 450 mass on the ship. You start at like 135 and your companions are roughly in the same, same yeah, vicinity. So that's why you got to just build a bigger ship. Uh, that'll solve your problems. It's not like you just, you certainly, you'll never fill 600 kilos of cargo capacity. No Mm, way, no way a human could do that. Sure will. Iron adds up quick. Yeah, and also if you like start making decisions like, you know what, I'm going to burn this level upgrade just to give myself a little more carrying capacity because that's going to pay off. That'll solve my problems. It won't, I promise you. It's 10. It's 10. I know. 10 is like two guns. (laughs) So... What I would highly recommend is don't pick things up. Like, don't just don't do it. Mm -hmm. Like, if there's a weapon you see that, like, 
that seems useful and like you want to use it or a suit of armor that you want to use, then go for it. But the thing that is really deceptive here is the game like tells you, here's the value of a thing. No vendor's going to honor that. It's it's like the worst. It's it's like the used car market, right? Where it's like this car is such and like. Are they listing the sell price? Are they sorry? Are they listing, sorry, are they listing the buy your buy price yes. Yes. their no, sell price? But also, but also, individual vendors rarely have more than five thousand credits that mm. they can give to you for a sale. And once you're decently into the game, you're getting weapon drops that are worth. 2000 a piece. And so it's like, cool, you picked up 10 weapons. You can sell three of them unless you'd like to go to the other end of the city and sell a couple more of them. But hang on, though. Do, do you like you'll sorry. take the 10,000 credit weapon and you go to the vendor and they're like, I'll give you 900 for that. And you're like, oh, so I just carried this thing across the galaxy for 900 credits, not the 10,000 that I thought I was getting when like a huge like luxury ship is 100,000 credits. Uh, clarifying question here: um, Is there a charisma? Is, is, are, am I, stats is stats and there, there, there are per, there are sta- there are stats can that can bring stats. down buy and I sell prices. There, um, uh, I, I don't so think just you like can, in like, real pers- life, you'll want to have a nice bottle of wine and maybe do some cool person drugs before talking to a vendor. I guess to get <laughs> your best prices because we is. know store we know uh, retailers love it. Yeah, when someone comes on oh, comes yeah. in rocking a pretty intense buzz a and a lot of charm. Thing to yeah, deal with. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but 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 I think Rob is right that um, this is a game where. You get dropped in, like, uh, you know, after a kind of a... I this game has a really sluggish start. Um, really sluggish. And the best way to mitigate that sluggish start is to mainline the story stuff for, like, 10-ish hours. Like, there will be... There is, and I am approaching, like, what I, I've been, like, consulting with somebody, like, who was much further, that he would beat in the game. And they're like, there is a very specific point where, like, you're going to have enough of, like, critical path stuff, where then it's sort of... <laughs> opens up where like you're gonna have a lot of different faction missions and side quests like lots of stuff to do in addition to the main quest stuff um which rob and i have seen very little of in totality but i have talked to several people who have like beaten the game and have spoken like very highly of where like the story the main quest stuff goes and is described as some of bethesda's strongest stuff and these are people that i fall in line with on boy i loved three in new vegas and like four did nothing for me and they found that Starfield went to some pretty interesting places by by the end of it, which hopefully mm-hmm. we'll be able to speak to in the future. But um, like mechanically, there's a big moment again that I can't speak about that really changes your relationship with the world, your player, uh, the player character, and the faster you can get to that stuff is also opening up the faster um, story stuff. Because um, this is a game where pretty early on you can just fuck off and go like. All right, like, you can't go from one end of the galaxy to the other. The game, it doesn't really gate you, except that, like, your ship can't, it can only go a certain distance. You can upgrade that. And then other than that, you have to, like, hop from, like, planet to planet to, like, unlock, like, fast travel routes. But broadly speaking, you can just, if you see it, like, you can go and you can land on a planet and look at those landmarks. But, um... Yeah, the thing that like the rhythm of a fall of a Bethesda game where it's like you get to a town, you encounter a bunch of quests, 
those quests take you to different places, and then on going on those quests, you find other things. Like, that's how these games splinter into threads. It's like, I'm going to do this quest, and then five hours later, ah, shit, I did three other things that came up on the way to that quest. It takes a while for all of those options to start appearing to you because this isn't like Fallout 3 or Skyrim where you drop in a space, you open the map, and it's like, wow, I could just walk over there and like see if I could pick up any quests like that are probably kind of late game-ish, but like I could go find them now. Like This isn't really that kind of game, and we get into this in the... Um, uh, in a, a greater detail in, in sort of our, our discussions, but, like, this is a fast travel game. Like, and I, I think this is, like, one of the things that I'm, I'm going to be curious how the rest of the world responds to it, but for a game that pitches itself as, like, hey, have a relationship with this ship. Have a relationship with the universe. A lot of what you do in this game is fast travel, load, fast travel, load, and just go from place to place uh with a mark of efficiency um as as opposed to wanting to stay in that ship and bounce slowly from place to place because uh it's delightful mechanically and aesthetically to do so there is really no like uh privateer or everspace uh characteristics to this game like this is a your ship just enables moving from fast travel post to fast travel post uh which is a bit of a bummer like it is not like uh, it's kind of uh, for me, it's a major box to check with the whole like we're going into space and just exploring a big open like galaxy, uh, you know, making that interesting and like creating some sense of like travel, having a momentousness to it uh, is is something I, I kind of want from games like this. This just doesn't provide that. Um, and so it doesn't, it, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to scratch the itch of games like Everspace or, you know, even like Rebel Galaxy. It's just not built to do that. Uh, but it does make that stuff feel, it, it makes Starfield feel less of a departure than I think I was expecting. Like I was expecting to feel more distinctive from a, you know, typical Bethesda game. And it really doesn't. Cause when you land on these planets, uh, so one of the things that we'll do is you'll you'll pull up your little scanner and you'll see on the horizon uh like oh there's a point of interest over there you go over there and at first you know you'll you'll have those moments of like wow there's a lot of stuff here and occasionally you will find cool little like dungeons that are that are pretty involved with cool little story beats but can't lie there are a lot of moments you go to a planet you scan around the horizon there's two or three abandoned outposts ooh what's the story behind those abandoned outposts uh pirates took them over uh, you just walk over there and it's like, here's some low level trash mobs. Just shoot them and get some get some loot. But that's kind of it. Uh, and, it's, and it's and it takes a while to get there is the thing. There is no ground transportation in Starfield. You're not like getting on a uh, like a buggy or a car, like a space car, <laughs> and like working your way over there. You're like landing at, often at a city um, and then like looking at the landmarks around you and they are you know, 800 kilometers away and meters that's meters. And that is a, that's, I don't know, a three to five minute hoof while also managing your oxygen levels and, um, and and things of that nature. And you're not, in my experience, finding things along the way, which you're finding is like, I don't know, things to scan a rock, uh, uh, rocks to mine. Um, but you're not, you're not kind of doing the thing that, 
I associate with a lot of Bethesda games, which is, ah, landmark is just a reason for me to walk in a direction. And then I'm expecting to like find things to my left and my right that distract me on the way there. And you'll eventually find those things. But in my experience, it has not been just dropping onto a planet and then like, ooh, like my scanners picked up this little spot. Like I'm going to go find something particularly interesting there or on the way there. And again, this game is gargantuan. Like I, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. Like the, that's why I'm chafing at <laughs> the discovery of like right before this podcast that I couldn't talk about this one thing. Cause it's like, I don't, how can you talk about this game without talking about this part? Like, okay, like that's the Especially rules of engagement. Cause the world I agree to, but at the start is really milk toast. Like yeah. I, you know, it's one of those things where, man, you can do anything with the setting of like what's happened to humanity in the far flung future. What have we turned into? Well, we have a fallout world full of space Texans <laughs> and we have vault dweller world, uh, you know, full of people with, you know, shiny high tech gadgets and such. But, uh, you know, they're, they're that's just kind of how how they operate to uh, a, a rigidly controlled, uh, you know, tech focused society. And that's and then you have like renegades and, and, and criminals and then random uh, like, you know, homesteaders out there. In, and, and no aliens, space. like right. Like it's a, it's a sci fi game that is predominantly about humanity and what it would do, at, you know, if it was explore, you know, ex- exploring and settling yeah. uh, the galaxy as opposed to. I mean, there is there's alien life forms okay. in terms of like creatures on ask. planets that you will shoot. Are there at least funny little guys not, that aren't talking little guys, but like little nobody's creature, talking little creatures running around? There's some cute creatures. Yeah. <laughs> there's some cute creatures, like some decent enemy design. Like I, I actually quite like the the new big bad they they have here called the Terror Morph, um, which are these like psychic monstrous kind of I don't know like I, I didn't get a good look at their design uh when I was fighting but like almost like Cloverfield-esque if you've seen uh the that the the Matt Reeves uh uh kaiju film from some years back and like they can like psychically control you and create hallucinations like it's neat like Is I've had there... a whole quest that's involved like trying to fit like and also it's neat like slight spoilers if you don't want to know a little bit more about the Terramors um like they just appear where humans settle and they don't know why. It happens somewhere between zero and a hundred years of a settlement. They aren't smuggled in. They don't know why they appear. Terramorphs, which can like take out an entire city, um, just appear. And it's like a really neat, mysterious, like they just don't know why they're here. And then like across the galaxy, there are no terramorphs. And then they appear. And the, like, it's, it's, a, it's neat. And like that's, that is the stuff that I live for and like, have enjoyed so much about these games. And I guess I'm just a little disappointed how long it takes before I feel like I'm in the thick of a handful of those. And now I do. I, I'm undercover with, you know, doing doing some sh- some shady shit. Like I'm fi- uh, discovering the nature of this reality and like why things are... are str- I, I have a lot of things going on, but the fastest way to get there is just to mainline the pretty banal part to the opening storyline that lasts anywhere from five to 10 hours, depending on how fast you're pushing through it. But you will be, you know, I don't think Rob or I, despite, you know, our, our like pretty substantial time with the game can tell you like where all that's going to land. But if you want to get to what feels like the good stuff, you just, you just kind of got to push through 
that opening bit and just like, I know there's a whole big universe, but I'm going to follow these, this, this constellation group for about 10 hours is, and see what happens next. How long did it take for Skyrim to start for you? In my memory is almost immediately. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was one of the best opening moments of a video game, right? Like Skyrim's opener is, there's a reason it's a meme. Like it's yeah. that dragon attaching, attacking while you're in. Yeah. Like getting transported as a prisoner is just it's fucking. And then amazing. even the act of um, getting the first dragon shout. First, I was cool. gonna say the first dragon shout right. seems pretty sick, and it's like a like, little that? microcosm. It's immediately it's like the first thing you your do. Your power, like your your dragon powers. No, no, in no, Skyrim. Yeah, yeah. I, no, no, no. I don't. I, that wasn't a question of like what is. Oh, it. Okay, no, I sorry. meant like I meant like when is it? Like when when it's do like you one of get, the first? If not it's really the early. first quest you get, I think. After no, there is enough between you and the mountain you have to climb where you can like go on some side quests before you actually if go you to your dragon to, yeah. That first village, that first village you can yeah. do. And that's, they have an equivalent here, right? Like New Atlantis is the first um, uh, city you visit. And there's a bunch of, do you want to go help someone fix some circuit breakers in like oh my the poor part of New Atlantis? Like you sure can. Um, uh, so they have those. Uh, just make sure you meet the tree guy. Like, Tree Guy is a quest worth picking up and continuing to follow through on. Listen to the after show to find out how Rob dealt with part of the Tree Guy quest, because not necessarily going to be on your bingo card, but, but it worked for him. But I would say, like, it, there is a lot more. So I think the, the, the big part of the problem is, uh, I think Starfield's pretty convinced that it's like, we're doing some good story stuff. Like this is not like that. It's not just gates before like the game really begins, but that the game has begun and you're like getting caught up on like, here's what the constellation group does. And here's, you know, the characters you're going to be, you'll be working with for, here's why mechs are banned. Yeah. And the problem is just a lot of the stuff is, is deeply boring. Uh, and I, like the characters are very stock the places you go are stock settings. Like again, uh, you go to the free star collective and that is, that is literally just space Texas, but it's a really particular type of space Texas, which is um, like the type of like people who are like really into being from Texas, but they've never like, but they're wealthy and deeply privileged and, <laughs> you know, have like soft hands effectively. Yeah, it's more of a, cost, and like, it's I, a costume. Yeah, and I'm a cosplay rancher. It's yeah. a, it's a, yeah. the, their entire society is cosplay ranchers. And that's just kind of a boring setting where everyone's just kind of acting like we do things differently out here in the free star collective. <laughs> we're, we're very, we're, we're very protective of our freedoms and it's all just people wearing like steampunkified, you right. know, rancher shit. And it's like, I can't, I can't with this. Uh, this, this is this is a really this is a really boring location. It's generating a lot of boring characters that were like this is foundational to well, it's, you know, Freestar is one of the major powers in the galaxy. And I'm like, oh Jesus! It's like half the galaxy is is filled with like off-brand Terrans from Starcraft. Like I no uh, pass. Uh, but yeah, um, so like I like Patrick. I think you got to the turn i am about to hit the turn uh based on some what i've been told but like it is a lot of i just i'm not super into these characters spending time with them and so the fact that the game has this long runway of showing you around to the stuff and and having you do these quests do these quests with these characters and and a lot of them uh is is a bit of a bummer because it does create i think it it gives starfield a 
worse first impression than it, it, it probably deserves. Well, and it's not even until you get uh, a decent way in where you meet, uh, well, Cowboy Town, you know, Sam, Sam Cole, I think is the, the Co, character's name. Yeah, Sam Cole. Co. Um, it's like one of the first times where you have a character who you go on an arc with them, right? And even that's not particularly long before you can <laughs> dismiss them back to uh, what's called the Lodge, uh, which is kind of where like the Constellation grew. Like, what, I mean, you do have like the longer you keep companions with you, um, like they'll open up to you. I mean, you can flirt. I don't know how far the romance stuff goes or how interesting it actually is, but like you can open up subquests like within them um, by ha- by hanging out with them long enough. But it's like you're, the game is throwing so many companions at you so fast that I, I've had a hard time gaining any attachment to one of them because I kind of wish the game would just sort of latch me onto one of them for a longer period of time so I could spend more time with them, frankly. And playing it back to back with Baldur's Gate is just brutal. Where it's like, <laughs> so that has been, I just can't, like, just stop talking. Yeah. Let's move it. Oh, do you want to I mean, flirt? that's no, no, ma'am, I do not. I mean, that's been my thought is that, like, it comes out as a, again, I don't, I, I think the audience for this is huge and not necessarily like overlaps with, but is distinctly separate from, from Baldur's Gate three. Um, but for folks who have played Baldur's Gate three, which Rob, you're one of them. I, I have opted out of that because the game's game's too long for me to dedicate the time meaningfully to, but as an RPG, it seems like Baldur's Gate three is in a class of its own. And over here with Starfield, it's again, it's kind of why I classify it as like, do you like Bethesda style games? Because I don't know that it's, I don't know this game is converting anyone. Um, uh, necessarily, whereas Baldur Gates Three seems to have converted people while also being a classic and traditional RPG and kind of all that goes with that. I worry the state of that release though is starting to unconvert people. Like it feels like this weekend I started people seeing more people posting about like, oh man, Baldur's Gate is becoming unplayably broken for me. Uh, which is kind of something we were talking about a bit last week. I I was not I did not find it optimal when I saw Jason our friend Jason Wilson, uh, you know, longtime editor. At a lot of games outlets, he, he was posting the other night. He's like, anyone have a thing now where the game just hard crashes every time you change locations? And I'm like, that is not a good bug. Mm-hmm. That is not a behavior I want to encounter deep into a game. The my understanding of from like uh, reading like all of the like uh, posts is basically that like yeah, it turns out Act Two and Three not done, not done really. Uh, from a, like a technical perspective, and. Uh, I believe the phrase that they used when uh, announcing patch two was that patch two would be introducing new technology uh, in order to uh, improve the stability of Baldur's Gate. Um, And and also altering endings like Mass Effect three style um, in response to criticisms of epilogues for certain characters, which I don't have strong feelings on one way or another. Like I epilogue. Carlock is getting a new yeah. epilogue. Yeah. Well, I gotta um, read the old one now. Be right back. <laughs> um. And so I, I, you know, I don't know if that's because <laughs> Carlock or whoever was was canceled in like their, you know, like epilogue. Like oh, like the. I, but I think that's interesting. They're going that far beyond just performance stuff, but also to, yeah. um, address sort of like writing criticisms. Um. But maybe that does speak to look. That Act One was an early access for three years, right? Yep. X two and three weren't. Yeah, like you if, you, spend if you weren't, a long if you weren't familiar in Act one, <laughs> right? And you aren't. Fam- yeah, if you aren't familiar, like Baldur's Gate three, like with the early access period was not. It's not as though it was like, oh, here's the full game, and now we're just sort of moving over to one point like we're done. Like for early access players, 
uh, acts two and three were a great mystery uh, to them as well. That's that's how Larian ha- handled the early access period. But I don't know. I mean, Rob, do you like Starfield? It's pleasant, mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> hmm. You know, if I were if it were not like professional obligation to like spend time with this game. I probably would have done other stuff with a decent chunk of the time spent playing it. Like it, it is, it's not my kind of game. And I like, and I think for me, part of it is I am not necessarily, I don't know. There's some games I'm, I'm ton. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to tons of little weird little chores in them, but this is a lot of, uh, you're going to do a lot of like <clears throat> low intensity, uh, you know, gameplay, a lot of like just sort of passive, like, I'm just going to go here and zap this thing with my rock harvester. And like, it's not unpleasant. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's fine. And like putting together habitats and bases is, is kind of cool. But at the same time, there've been very few moments where I'm like, well, that was really cool. That was a neat thing that just happened. And I'm really glad I saw it. And th- which is kind of like, what I mostly want from my from my time with a game is like lots of lot, they don't have to be like the biggest moments in the world, but lots of like decent moments where I'm coming away with it saying like that is a memorable event or a cool story and interesting like, you know, reveal about something about this world. And Starfield doesn't have very many of those um, when they when they do hit, they're very cool. But yeah, I think it's sort of the the classic modern Bethesda experience of you know, a very long, <laughs> very long, uh, well-paved road without, you know, without a ton of like really memorable points of interest, but lots of activities. Yeah, I think I'm liking it more than you. I think the where I'm trying to figure out where I fall on it is uh, I also liked well enough Fallout 4 for 30 to 40 hours mm-hmm. and then just realized I was on this treadmill because of the investment I'd had with their previous games and that that wasn't carrying over to this new one. And I don't know where I sit on that arc with, with Starfield quite yet. I, 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 I would, you know, before you like move on to other things, you know, I would encourage you, right. Like to push a little further yes. in that story uh, to kind of see where things open up. And if that like moves the needle for, for you on all, because uh, like, you know, fo- folks I've talked to felt very similarly, yeah. And then hit a certain point and then felt like it became much more interesting from there. Uh, again, it's not good to have so much like have that much runway before you can get to that stuff, because I think Ren's question earlier was a good one. How long did it take before you felt like you were hitting yeah, I'm like that 28 kind of hours in earlier games? Right. I'm 28 and like, I think hours I was hitting, and I'm like, mm, I yeah. don't know. And yes, I've heard the thing where it's like, well, you got to get to the part where things really get rolling. And at 28 right. and hours, bad, you and, hope they've gotten rolling. Right. Um, either by the game. Uh, putting those things in front of you or are you accidentally running into them, right? And 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 I think that is kind of the issue that you and I have have run into, which is like it's it's pleasant, it's very comforting. It is it is a I I, I have not disliked my time with it. Um but I think because of the sh- the shadow that personally like games like Fallout 3 and New Vegas and and Skyrim cast for me is I have really high expectations for for like these types of games from this studio. Right. And four didn't work for me. And I'm I'm liking Starfield. I just don't I, I just don't know if it's a Fallout 4 where it's like, ah, this was fine enough, but I don't feel the I don't feel like I have to put the actual time into to seeing everything there is here. And I just don't know. So I'm gonna keep playing it. Um and and we'll have lots to say about the nitty-gritty 
um, in the post show. You'll be able to hear those those parts um, after like we formally exit the podcast, and then you'll hear Rob and I come back um, and talk for like two plus hours about like, do you want to hear how the booster pack works, and how do you figure out whether your character is going to wear a space suit on planets or not and make that a toggle. Um, so anyway, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll have more to say soon and there's plenty more at the end of this podcast and we'll be doing a couple of streams this week. Um, one of which will already have happened. And when this is out, one of which might be happening wow. uh, with Rob. Um, so, so stay tuned for that. All right. We will take a quick break and, uh, we'll pick up the second half of the show. Uh, with well as Patrick implied, I guess it's more like the, the One, middle the third, third. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll we'll talk about some other games uh, and maybe find some time for the question bucket. But maybe not. Maybe maybe there's just too much gaming uh, to to allow for misses. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Back after this. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar or you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. Uh, Because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high protein, less sugar, and as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. Only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein, has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com slash remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code remap at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Hey, REMAP Radio listeners. Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget, and unfortunately my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy. And not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's, right, that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off.
And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And we're back. Uh, so there's a bit of news that came out last week before the episode came out, but it broke after we had stopped recording, which is that uh, Bioware released a statement about the future of the Bioware studio. And what that turned out to be was a future where a bunch of people are getting fired uh, effective immediately. Massive layoffs hit the studio, including some of the longest tenured staff. Uh, people going back to like foundational games uh, in, in, in Bioware's history. And yeah, I mean, like Patrick, why don't you talk, talks through a little bit, like, you know, the scale, scale of what happened here. And then some of the, some of what people fear it implies for, for the studio's future. Yeah. Uh, it was about, you know, 50 ish employees, you know, it comes after uh, Bioware is going to, uh, they're no longer going to be involved in the development. I mean, I, I think they're still overseeing, but they are no longer going to do production work on the Old Republic, the MMO that's been uh, largely, I think, made in Bioware Austin um, for a number of years now. That's been being moved to an external uh, studio. Um, they're in full production on Dragon Age Dreadwolf and what seems like eternal pre-production on <laughs> the new Mass Effect game that may not come out at this point for another like four or five, six years at, at the glacial pace. It seems like they're working on it. Um, but yeah, they, they announced layoffs, which, Hey, layoffs happen. You know, they work for a company like EA in which layoffs are constant. Um, the, the, uh, the statement, uh, that came from the studio was, um, in order to meet the needs of our upcoming projects, continue to hold ourselves to the highest standard of quality and ensure Bioware can continue to thrive in an industry that's rapidly evolving, we must shift towards a more agile and more focused studio. It will allow our developers to iterate quickly, unlock more creativity, and form a clear vision of what we're building before development ramps up. To achieve this, we find ourselves in a position where change is not only necessary, but unavoidable. As difficult as this is to say, rethinking our approach to development inevitably means reorganizing our team to match this the studio's changing needs. As part of this transition, we are eliminating approximately 50 roles of Bioware. This is deeply painful and humbling to write. We are doing everything we can to ensure the process is handled with empathy, respect, and clear communication. With that last point in mind, I want to take a moment to explain how we got here, what we're doing to support our colleagues, and what this means for Bioware's current and future games. I know someone that was uh, impacted by this, and they found out about it a couple of minutes before this blog post went live. So, A, like fuck off with like saying like this was handled with like deep care. Like you don't publish a blog post um, moments after people are finding out they've lost their jobs and say that you've handled this with, I mean, these are, these are complicated things to do. I'm like, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of legal uh, considerations made when you're, when you're doing layoffs of this scale, but anyway, um, I think the thing that was most notable, the thing that caught people off guard about this was exactly what you pointed out, Rob was the, it wasn't as though, Hey, slimming down the teams, like just like random, uh, you know, uh, folks on a dartboard, like lost their jobs, like the kind of stuff we're used to. We've internalized, we've gotten just figured as part of the normal uh, uh, production cycle of, of making games as depressing um, as it might be and cynical as it might be. But like, these are like long time, decades, 15, 20 years 
of working at Bioware, like really senior folks that you would imagine if they are in heading towards like like the final year of production on the next Dragon Age, you'd want those kinds of people around with the history of the franchise and like seeing this next game through. Um, those sorts of people were let go. And so, you know, I don't have any insight into what was the thinking here. What is, does this reflect any sort of change in direction for the studio? Does it, is it a reason to be nervous that, boy, they decided to make another Mass Effect game again, just in time to fuck with Bioware and maybe not make that Mass Effect game? I don't know. But it is troubling for a, like, long troubling era of Bioware that we have, I feel like, been through I don't know, post Mass Effect 2. I feel like after Mass Effect 2, like we entered into an era of Bioware that has um like had a lot of ups and downs and to watch a lot of its legacy kind of tossed away from a labor perspective from the like it's troubling. Like I I don't know how you could look at this and be excited about the future of Bioware and that's, you know, without knowing the how the new Dragon Age is shaking out or how that new Mass Effect game might come together, like a purge, a a straight up kind of purge of this level of history from the studio. It it, it strikes me as troubling, even if I don't, I can't speak to why, why they decided this time and and this moment. It's troubling, but also like historically, this is like not that odd for like EA as a, publisher like they there's actually been a pretty like long history of like this maybe not like specifically targeting senior staff but like sudden and surprising surprising layoffs like this with like weird projects like i was recently i've been reading uh games of empire and basically all of the practices described in games of empire uh for describing 2004 ea uh are basically still like extremely common and like I would be unsurprised if, like, a lot of, like, the the more uh, disquieting management practices had not changed uh, at all uh, in the 15 years preceding, given that, like, general business strategy even and even, like, development pipelines um, seem to be, like, uh, well, not the same, or definitely, like, EA has always, just to use the quote that I'm uh, looking at here, um... The first and most important uh, is management's determination to control in a highly predictable manner the outcome of a complex, potentially chaotic production process. Pausch notes that an early chore for the pre-production team is quite explicitly to remove innovation so that later stages proceed in a highly productive, parallelized fashion on the premise that developers fall into trouble when they have to innovate. Um, the, the thing that like stands out to me there is like, talking about the extreme focus on like heavy pre-production processes and then the like inability to kind of adapt after that does gesture at uh, a lot of like troubled development uh, histories in like the years since. Sorry, Rob. So no, but I think, I think there's a few things that what's funny about hearing stuff like that is I think we've all heard it from the other side, which is when people are like uh, crunch is a failure of management. One of the frequent solutions to that is do better pre-production and iron out exactly what you're going to be doing and like figure out how this thing is going to proceed once you leave the prototyping stage. So I've always found like there's there's a bit of tension with that, which is that part of like putting projects under like 
giving them some direction and scope and preventing it from turning into a uh, fire drill at the end or midway through does tend to involve this, like, how do you make it predictable from here? And that is going to be intention with with innovation. I think for me, one of the the things about EA is that they so they do historically have this reputation as being studio killers going back to their earlier waves of acquisition, like early in the studio's history. Right. And part of it is that, you know, those early acquisitions, I think it wasn't necessarily intended to kill studios, but they didn't know how to fold existing studios with their own identities into the like into a larger publisher. Uh, and, I, and I do think for a number of years, like EA tried to address some of that and become a, at least a better place to work for. I, I knew a lot of people who were quite happy at EA, even if cr- the creative output was maybe not the most dynamic and exciting. But I think what it kind of feels like here is that now studios are having the squeeze put on them just by like some of the structural shifts in the industry. I think, you know, it's a, it's a common place to bring this up, but you know, EA would quite happily just be FIFA ultimate team stuff and clones of that everywhere forever. Uh, and why are we wasting time making other stuff uh, when, when we could just be, you know, farming, farming these sports games and their, uh, you know, in at in app stores uh, effectively. I think with with this in particular, I, like what's really demoralizing is that you would have you would hope that post Anthem and post Mass Effect Andromeda that like the strategy for Bioware from here was like all right back to basics. You know what we are we are going back to the the core Bioware stuff people loved. Uh, you know, big narrative rich uh you know rpgs and that's what we're gonna go all in on but this layoff seems to have targeted the brain trust for big narrative rich mm-hmm. rpgs and, com- uh, and comes at the end of a month in which a sequel to one of the studio's most celebrated franchises is yeah. having unprecedented success embracing a combination of like old game design and new like the fact that that's happening is upsetting. Like, it's also kind of chef's kiss that, like, that could be happening at the same time and speaks to a lot of the trouble Bioware has had, I think partly because of EA, partly for other reasons. But for that all to happen, it's just easy to forget that Baldur's Gate was, like, is deeply tied to the the Bioware that made games like Dragon Age and Mass Effect later, like Baldur's Gate was, was cr- critical to, to, to getting to, to where, where we are now. Those are foundational pieces of the studio and that franchise is seeing a revival, um, whether they make a Baldur's Gate four or not. Um, but to have this well, happen at the same time is just like, and if we take the statement of face value and related to what Ren just said, like some of what this statement is implying is we just need to change our workflows and be more, use that word, that loaded word, agile. Uh, Nimble. Was that like a bunch of, hey, a bunch of you old crusty Bioware folks are standing in the way of us making a new game? Like, is there, like, is it, it, like, is part of how you read this that what we might look at as historical institutional brain trust is being viewed by Bioware, by EA, I don't know. As well, so hey, the thing is, the statement was put out by Gary McKay, and yeah. you might ask, who the fuck is Gary McKay? He's and he's an ans- old head, right? 
No, no, he's not like he's a recent arrival at uh, at Bioware and he has some like background with with EA. But in general, he's been sort of a looks like he's sort of been a suit bouncing from, uh, you know, studio to studio doing like executive managerial type stuff. And then he shows up in a director role uh, in Bioware in in 2020, you know, just going by his by his LinkedIn. But like this is not this. This is not some like old Bioware hand who's coming Mm. in and making these calls and he's promoted to studio head fairly, fairly recently. So. You know, I I could see it as being like, if you are now the head of a studio with a renowned legacy of making certain types of games, but you weren't there for any of that, and you don't actually you 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 didn't make games like that, and you haven't shipped them, I could see it causing some friction when a lot of your senior employees know considerably more about this craft than you do. Uh, I tend to think that's probably a, a, a useful friction to have and probably it's an unlearning opportunity and, you know, maybe that's something to negotiate. But here it sort of seems like maybe the brief was uh, identify big salaries and people who are not going to get with the program of how we want to make these games uh, and and show them the door. Well, the, the salary point is, is I think, particularly relevant here because, like, the other thing is that, like, this is, like... M- a lot of like big tech and like not games or the relationship between games and blah 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 like a lot of recent layoffs uh has mostly been like sacrifices to executive it's, it's been it's a bit like bloodletting sacrifices to like appease shareholders uh to like show that like something is happening uh you know we are we are responding to the market um yeah. and so and this business unit is losing less money now uh, right. Because we took a bunch of salaries off the ledger, so now it's not a you know we haven't released a game in a minute, so now it's not just this like quarterly loss that's right. that's sitting there. It looks better. It's superficial, but that is the nature of in like the way investments are are, are valued and calculated uh, is is you know via that superficial these superficial metrics. But I don't know when I when, like when I just hear in a statement like you know it's it's humbling. To, to you know to, to have to write something like this it's like no i think the word is humiliating like people often like <laughs> yeah people often use humbling when they mean flattering because you just don't want to own up to the fact that you feel good about something oh, or use shucks. humbling to obscure the fact that like the implication of just this act is that like something badly broke along the way and it's probably at your doorstep but we can't hold you accountable uh and and so this 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 notion of your your kind of gutting senior staff at bioware um, you know, it is, it, it is embarrassing to be in there smashing up the crown jewels. Maybe that's entirely EA, uh, you know, just saying that this is, this is now what the studio head of Bioware needs to do is you need to be the person, you know, bring the ax down on folks. Cause this, we're not going to, we don't have use for these veterans. Uh, you know, we think all of this can be done by a younger workforce, uh, you know, more tightly controlled through development uh paradigms and but man i just don't salaries. know that pardon and with probably much lower salaries yeah the overall just given the way the seniority tends to work at these companies though again like you know frequently institutional knowledge is a real thing and it yeah. turns out that some of those folks making a ton of money it, it they actually can't be replaced by multiple people mm-hmm. uh because right. there's just a lot of like instinctive uh understanding and and intuition that you can't you can't reproduce uh 
with with a bunch of with a bunch of juniors. But yeah, it just seems like such a bad sign for you know. I feel like the entire you know new new Dragon Age coming. This is something that people are supposed to get fired up about, right? That this was going to be, we're making another Dragon Age game. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be another Bioware story. And like, we're, there'll, be, there'll be no <laughs> mistakes this time. And now you look at it and it's like, you know, those people who made a bunch of the games that people loved. And it's why people care about Bioware uh, as opposed to a lot of other fairly anonymous uh, large publisher studios. We got rid of a bunch of those people. But, but- don't worry. The development process will get it. Right. The people who wrote the characters that like define because, you know, these RPGs, they are defined quite literally, like basically by their narratives um, uh, and and their characters. And like the the cuts to the narrative team are crazy to read. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they they like they banked they banked all of like the the lead up to uh, the new the new one with like hashtag whatever the wolf whatever egghead whatever like they, they dread wolf rises dread or wolf, like whatever that, or, like you have yeah. to know the i don't i didn't play that game so i don't know the lore i only know what natalie said and i feel exactly. like that might not have been the clearest distri- there's an egg the and he does some bullshit and people don't like him but they're also in love with him they also want to fuck them. Sorry, that's that's what I should have said. Yeah, they, they don't like them, wow. but they that's also want to the fuck design them. document for all of Baldur's Gate. All of the crazy, yeah, exactly. They want to fuck uh, the elf supremacist. Is, they want is, the elf. Yeah, the yes, 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 yes. It's so closely tied to that character, which was written by some of these people that just got yep. laid off. Like, like it's <laughs> not not a good sign. No. And it's it's. I think it is one of those things that the the, the gamble is that. The IP is so strong. This is kind of what we see playing out in Hollywood, right? The IP is so strong. You don't need the creatives who made it valuable. You can just you can put the IP on whatever and people will still treat it as a new one of those and and you'll be fine. I don't know, man. It's like I'm not sure there's as much magic in the Bioware name as there used to be. And I'm not sure Dragon Age putting a new Dragon Age out is going to solve that unless you can also deliver on what people expect. Yeah when they think of Dragon Age. Um, but yeah, yeah the, mag- the magic's in the franchises and the characters in the world. It's not in the studio anymore. I don't know that yeah. Bioware means anything to anyone anymore, other than its close association with these franchises and worlds. But increasingly, it's it's not like you associate it with a magic touch. Like, I mean, I, I, I you know, I quite liked Inquisition, um, and I was not even familiar with the Dragon Age world and was excited to see what they do with this, with, with Dreadwolf. But... I think broadly speaking, like people want to see a new Mass Effect, and I think would be just as happy if a bunch of ex Bioware veterans were starting a new studio to do that new Mass Effect, and it didn't have Bioware's name on it. I don't think that means much to people anymore. Yeah, and and I I don't think. Yeah, it's like EA needed to shore up, uh, sort of what those franchises and what that studio name means. And right now, now the path is murkier as to, I don't know how you're going to accomplish that, uh, in this, in this next development cycle. Uh, so that is, that's a, that, that's a major open question. Um, Ren, I want to talk to you real quick, just because, you know, we're talking about like classic iconic games. And I've been seeing something popping up in my inbox for a bit that I just haven't tuned into yeah. uh, a new six ages game. Yeah. 
And I know you like just touched on it, but just like set the like set the stage a little bit for why that's so exciting to to uh, a, a set of folks. Well, OK, so historically, King of Dragon Pass was a, I believe, 90s. Yes. Uh, RP- it's old as the hills, but I think you're right. Yes. But it might. It might be. I believe I believe King of Dragon Pass is 90s because the setting Glorantha is like, I believe, 50 years old? Oh, it's old? younger than I thought, I guess. It's 99. Yeah. Um, the setting, though, of Glorantha, uh, the, I believe that's the, that's the, if I'm remembering correctly, is, I believe, 50 years old or, or, or 60 at this point, uh, is also the setting for, uh, the TTRPG, the 13th Age, um, and like a, a couple of other things. Um, and so King of Dragons. Oh, this is the setting of like RuneQuest and HeroQuest. Yeah. Like games I know from my board gaming friends, like moldering shelves of things in their basement. And they're like, that's a classic. What's the last time you brought it out? Been a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, King of Dragon uh, Pass. King of Dragon Pass. Uh, in 19- really good phone implementation. Wait, what? There's a really good phone implementation of King of Dragon Pass. Wait, now. really? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. This is, this I've is, heard of this. Yeah, last, uh, like, Austin recommended I play it once and was, like, genuinely now the probably the best way to play it is on your phone. Um, but nice. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nifty thing. It's, um, I don't know, how do you describe it, Ren? Like, what is King of Dragon Pass? And, like, so basically yeah. it is a clan management strategy game. Uh, you are you are managing a group of people and their resources uh, in a setting in that is really unique in its handling of faith i would say uh in that like the gods are basically unstuck from time or experience time so differently that like everything has already happened and is is simultaneously happening and has already happened uh and so basically uh you're trying to manage a like uh, a clan of um i forget who you are in king of dragon pass but in this you are former followers of Orlanth, uh, who is a god who has recently been killed. Um, and that is basically the pitch on this game, is that Six Ages 2 takes place during the end of the world. There are about three generations of people left, uh, and then the world will end. But you do not know that. Uh, and so, basically, the goal is to survive until oh, wow. the end of the world. Um through a couple of generations of time uh, as basically the clan leader. Um, I don't know if I can handle that right now. Yeah, it's uh, Rob, it's 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 thematically heavy and like mechanically (laughs) puts a lot of pressure on you. Uh, This is a game about like people being almost starving most of the time. Yeah, Um, well, that's I mean, that's King of Dragon Pass because like it is a uh, we always talked about this over three moves ahead, uh, which is that like it fits in the strategy game discussion because it is such a resource management game and there's a lot of like diplomacy and all this, but it all plays out as a narrative game right? where you are making choices like choose your own adventure style. But there are some parts of it that are just very like just pure mechanics where it's like you'll go into the screen and yeah. allocate these resources this way. But like a lot of what you do in the game is like, OK, and now we send this expedition over into the next valley and you meet these people and you go into really narratively rich encounter that you have to navigate. And your seven advisors will all tell you very different right. things to do uh, and be extremely annoying about them. Uh, because they all of your characters have their own 
like uh, all of these like advisors you have also have their own motives uh, also have like the things that they they particularly want to happen uh because you know they might have a very good combat skill and are really itching for you to 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 get into a fight or alternatively worship a god that is now dead and like people yeah. who like worship dead gods are the idea is that like their magic is kept alive if you continue to worship them but like will run out if you it, it becomes the magic of the gods goes from a unlimited resource to a limited resource after they die um and so it kind of incorporates a lot of the like older mechanic stuff of like going on quests to like recreate the stories of the gods uh to gain power from that um it it retains stuff like that while also adding in this other layer of like you could build a temple to a god and that god could get killed and so like do you maintain that temple after that god has died? Do you do you maintain it for as long as you can get the last of its magic out? Or do you just, like, scrap it and, you know, redirect your resources elsewhere? Uh, the death of gods makes you have to, like, actively shift your strategies over time to, like, okay, uh, I guess that uh, farming god, dead. So we either have to put a ton of resources into farming to be able to feed ourselves, or just accept that like we're gonna have to find a new way of interacting with this environment uh and a bunch of people having to very rapidly find new ways of interacting with their environment does lead to a lot of like complex diplomacy uh yeah especially in a uh like a a society with a clan structure and a king uh where some of the people in the clan structure are like maybe we don't need the king anymore maybe maybe kings not actually important um and so it's it's been really excellent so far i haven't put as much time into it as i've wanted to because i've been yeah. trying to put time into ac6 um but i've i've really really loved what i've played so far and everything that i've heard from from the folks i know who have put more time into it has been glowing um by the way, you mentioned AC6, and I think we'll have more to say about that later. But uh, I know that like you're going to be uh, talking more about that. Yes. Uh, on another podcast. Can you just tell people where they can go, where they will be able to go listen to more Ren takes yes. on AC6? Uh, I will be doing uh, the deepest dive with MinMax for the next two weeks. Uh, it'll be streaming live on Twitch on Sunday, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. Uh, or you can catch the podcast version or the VOD version, uh, I believe, like the day after. Uh, it's a very quick turnaround time. I didn't even have to I didn't, I didn't even have to do a local. I didn't even do a local. Ren, uh, Ren, you can't talk about this stuff. Patrick is already too curious about other podcast production methods. And I, I don't, don't do a single podcast it. this way anywhere else. But, I, you know, what? I respect the process. I respect the process. I think we I think we I, hey, I think we put out a good show. I think we put out a well produced program. Not, yeah, not it sounds great. I'm just after Rob, after we did that one with the 414 media 404 media ones is like, Rob, this I think this is actually the one where we should have used fucking Zencast. Yeah, that would that one might have, that one might have been maybe. Here's uh, the thing, but on the, the I will only... say some of these some of these other things are so miserable to like use as conversational vessels that I'm like, yeah. This is just a nightmare. The only uh, the only file that ended up bad that day. Yeah, we don't need to talk about. <laughs> you know, who's to say? Who was to say what happened or mm -hmm. why Even by Joseph whom? had a good file. Shut Even the jo fuck up. 
The person who sounded like a robot while you were recording. Joseph it, sounded it. like Joseph sounded like like he was talking by like wiring two a copper car. wires like, together that occasionally like allowed the the mic to carry sound and uh, clear yeah. clear as day. Good file. Yeah, but no, <laughs> folks. Like there's there's a there's a brewing debate uh, within Remap where Patrick's like we could just do an all in one techno solution, and I think Kato is still still standing strong that like mm-hmm. we can hit a higher quality bar and wouldn't have you like a video reliable. podcast no i'm sorry i didn't say i didn't say anything i didn't say i didn't say anything just keep going i don't want a video podcast i don't want a video no i i poison poison to me poison to maybe me. maybe special maybe a special treats but like yeah, i can't, don't I can't. So nothing about the way we make this means we can't do a video podcast that is a totally well, different piece of tech hey, Kato, we don't need to <laughs> hang on wow let's Listen. let's have seven more oh layers of recording things it'll anyway this isn't a production meeting <laughs> So, um, see what I'm working with, audience? I'll get you there. I know what you want. I will find a way to make it happen. Uh, the audience wants great audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the audience, the audience is sickos. I think, I think they are sickos. the audience is on, is on my side here. <laughs> I, but anyway, yeah, point is, uh, look, Ren, it's fine. <laughs> the experimenting What's with the other podcast production methods, <laughs> that's fine. Oh, listen, no, 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 it's okay. That The video podcast gives me body dysmorphia seven. So, like, I'm fine if we do not, if if we, li- listen, like, go you there, I do not tread. Uh, <laughs> y- y- y'all can install that after I am gone. Yeah. Body dysmorphia seven. Uh, I don't know why it went into space. Yeah. But, like, I, I feel like the OG was, was really know, where the formula was, was established. Uh, all right. So, speaking of classic games, though. Uh, and I don't know if Patrick, you you played this. Uh, I think we both got code for it, but I do want to talk about like maybe the actual coolest release this week. Not the biggest, but maybe the coolest. Now I need to do a disclosure thing because like I am friends with somebody at Digital Clips. I work with uh, Drew Scanlon, formerly Giant Bomb, uh, you know, o- over on Shift F1. But hey, lots of my friends do things, and I don't support them at all, and I don't pay attention to to what they're up to because <laughs> I'm busy and I get distracted or I mean to check out their stuff and I just don't. So like, believe me, if I didn't think this was neat, I would not be bringing it up. But uh, what I'm getting at is Digital Clips put out. A thing called the making of Karataka. Historical is, document. I I, I I I don't know if that's the category, but I they, it's a studio that is. Um, they did that Atari, right? They did the Atari uh, a collection. That it's there. There is. They're going beyond just uh, putting games on playable on modern hardware, but are actually trying to provide context for what were these works. Why did they exist? What was the context around them? And I think the the Atari one was very impressive. And it sounds like by all the reviews and also your own experience, like this this new one is even like more uh, stark. Yeah, I think probably the biggest problem with it is I'm not sure people are going to be like as interested in Karataka (laughs) as they would be in other games. Yeah. And so like you you can't help but play it and like, Oh, I wish they made this, but for like, and then a long litany of games. But the reason I sort of stumbled over what it is, is because it is like, it's sort of a vintage game re-release, but also I think the closest comparison I can actually make to it is it is like a virtual museum tour. 
uh, or like a virtual museum installation about the history of Karataka. And in particular, this is Jordan Mechner's like first game or his first breakthrough game. Uh, he went on to make Prince of Persia, uh, The Last Express, uh, you know, a major figure in, in video games, but Karataka's his, his first hit. And the way they have, the way this, this works and the way they present it is just incredibly cool and incredibly beautifully presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm playing on PlayStation five, you launch into the program and you start the, you start the game and effectively what you are steered into first is, uh, you know, it's not quite like a DVD menu. It is like just steps on your, or your tour covering the prehistory of like Mechner's early career and laying, laying down like who you're going to be talking to in this. So like Tom Hall from, from id is in there. Ref Coster uh, pops up a lot of, a lot of figures. And then you will have like interview snippets with those characters. You will see a lot of like really endearing conversations between uh, Jordan Mechner and his dad was the composer uh, for his first games. His, his dad was, was a, was a musician. And then along the way, you're going to get access to um, like, so in just in the opening stage, for instance, uh, Jordan Mechner is a young kid when the, when the Apple II comes out and he realizes that there's a hunger for video games for the Apple II. And he decides, what if I ripped off popular games and sold them for $20, $30 a pop to this like ravenous audience? I could make some sweet bank doing that. And so he starts ripping off asteroids effectively. He starts, uh, you know, doing making making his knockoff <laughs> versions of that and pitching them to uh, to publishers. And what you get in this are documents like letters between him and the publishers that are like really carefully scanned and rendered on the screen. So you can just go read them like you're leafing over these documents and they are worth a read. They're not just there as like interesting, like, okay, we're going to show you like, this is the actual contract he signed. It's so cool seeing like what it was like back in this day where he's, he is a, a teenage programmer writing in and you will see these letters coming back being like the overlap between this and, editing stories is actually pretty amazing for this era because he'll get he'll get feedback like you know i just don't know that i like your your asteroids should be more cartoony (laughs) and actually do they all have to be asteroids like there's already a game called asteroids and i don't know if we want to be too similar to asteroids so what if they were like alien bugs maybe (laughs) you can make them alien bugs but like cartoony and so he they would send that letter back to him and he'd be like all right i'll try a new build where like i'll introduce new like cartoony bugs and send it back off and it's like you know it just feels like there's not much to it after the opening like games are changing i'm not sure it's enough to be an asteroid clone anymore like maybe you could have other well, games- and also sending must be like sending a, a like an, a physical floppy in the mail right like right. we're not like uploading to a bbs like we are sending right. in the mail like a probably a, a, a the big thin floppies not the 3.5s what there was like five the five inches? and quarter like, yeah yes yes well and and that's so like some of his early correspondence with uh Broderbund is a Every email, every email, every letter he gets from Broderbund starts with an apology for, hey, I think we might have lost our last letter that we sent you. Uh, I can't find a carbon <laughs> copy of it. So I'm just going to 
write you another one and just say what I said in that other one. Uh, and then like later, another apology. Hey, I think we meant to send you back a build and we just forgot to enclose it. So keep an eye out for that. But like lots of cool little curiosities in that. And then alongside that, you will see snippets of what Mechner is writing in his journal because he is he's going to school at Yale not really going to school because he's decided he's going to be a game programmer. So like he's basically taking mail uh, at, at Yale, but he's not, he's not going to classes. So you'll see him writing stuff out like, Oh boy. Uh, I just didn't go to class today. Got notice. I'm, I'm failing psych. Uh, I really need to stop working on this game and like actually go to class. And then, you know, you'll see another entry where it's like, man, I got some really horrible feedback about uh, my asteroids game. And they're right. That game is crap. I need to completely like revamp it. And so all the, and by the way, as you're scrolling, going through this like exhibit, the builds up here on little like virtual, like 3d floppies and you, you can fire them up and digital eclipse has made these playable on your, on your system. And you can also, they've allowed you to, if you, if you want to use the full screen, you can go to a full screen version of that that goes to the full, you know, 16 by nine aspect ratio, or you can play it in the original aspect ratio. You can put a filter on it that makes it look like it would uh, coming through a CRT TV from that era, or you can do sort of a more modern clean render of it. Uh, And in the you know if you pull up the instructions for the game you, you go to the pause menu you pull up the instructions you will see the original printed instruction manual for this game or in the case of a lot of these builds the instructional notes he enclosed to his contacts at the publishers mm. um and so like it does this for every chapter of like the making of this game and uh, you know, how he ends up coming up with it. And then, you know, in those days, you're quickly porting it from Apple to Commodore to Atari uh, and then where, where it leaves off. But it is such a thoughtfully produced object uh, with, with, with such like good selection and presentation of archival material because presentation for this stuff is not easy. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you make it look more than just like, uh, so I guess, how do they handle, you know, if you've played any classic collection, sometimes you'll get like, oh, there's a concept art gallery and like, here's some documents and like, man, like it's not fun to like scroll through a PDF, especially on a television screen. So right. how does it handle art makes sense? Art is very pretty, put it on a big screen. Uh, but like, I imagine to, to illustrate this context, like there's a lot of text, both text documents, but also probably surrounding text to give you the context about the text on the screen. Like, how does it handle that presentation to make it make sense and be readable? It's just, it's none of the crap you associate with uh, PDFs, where, like, if you pull up um, a letter, you know, right trigger zooms in on it, and then you just scroll down the page. But, like, it's so well rendered that it doesn't look like crappy scan. It looks like you have access to the original document. Uh, and I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of curious if they if these are the original documents or they are just done up to look like the original documents. Uh, Mechner. So part of what makes this unique as Mechner is famous for, like you said, he He's has a, a journal, rat. like he, he kept all of this stuff. So my, uh, my, my guess would be that this is all original documentation. And especially if they're going with, Hey, we're showing you the history of this thing that they would put an asterisk that says, Hey, we've reproduced the aesthetic of this document, but the, the text of it is, you know, is true. Um, but like yeah. that's 
again, like, you know, part of the reason games are hard to port is because a lot of developers didn't keep source code. Do not like part of the archival process that like you could do this to varying degrees for different games. Part of why I think this project was picked was it you had access to all the primary documents and the person. And it proves out a model of like this is as we went as deep as you can go. And then you present this to some other studio. It's like we can do a version of this for your game to complement the re-release that, you know, everybody's doing every five or 10 year anniversary. Yeah. But I think I do think this is kind of unique because because Mechner over the years has he just has always posted like if you follow him on social media, yeah. like I don't know much what he, what is what he's doing now. But like for a while, he was like he would post stuff like this. And it's like, how do you even have this? Um and well, I think he's just a unique figure in that regard. He is, and I have no idea how unique. Uh, one of the things they cite early in the documentary is a comic book that is not out yet, but it's going to be out early next year. I linked this uh, for you, Patrick. Let me, let me pull up. Uh, it, is a, it is a book called Replay. It appears to be releasing first in France, uh, and, then, and then will be released in English. Is he but, French? Um, uh... I don't know. Well, so... <laughs> Just part of this the- is about his, like this is a memoir of his relationship with his family, but it starts with his family fleeing Europe uh, mm. in during World War II, and it looks like he illustrated this all himself. Uh, and it's it's a gorgeous. If you follow like the current state of comics art, the comic memoir, the comic history thing is an increasingly popular format. Uh, and this looks like a very good one, one of those. Um, but like, so this is like, this looks like an incredible thing uh, that, I, that I'm really excited to buy next year. But uh, yeah, Mechner is kind of a, a singular figure in this way, um, a, a bit of a polymath and somebody who whose career spans some really interesting eras in in the industry. And and I think it didn't make a ton of games, right? Like did a lot of different like has again done a graphic novel has been involved in film both adaptations of his work like writing initial drafts of the sands of time movie which i've never seen but by all accounts was just okay like it was fine um um (laughs) you know has been involved in like short form documentaries like i'm not sure what he's doing for money like it's like he kind of had prince of persia and then yes look the last express I know is considered by many to be a masterpiece, but like it is not, not as though not a hit hasn't really had, you know, was involved has been involved in Prince of Persia. Like Ubisoft has continued to have him. Well, like he was involved in Sands of Time. I think um, he's really involved in that. Like, I think okay. I think him and Patrice Desley, like we're sort of fist and glove on that one. I'm not sure. But like Sands of Time is a really interesting one because in a lot of ways that is like. You can draw a line between that and Assassin's Creed, right? This is mm-hmm. Ubisoft kind of stumbling yeah. onto what is the core mechanical language of what is going to be all our games now for forever and ever. And it's like Ubisoft Montreal's first real outing. Um, but Mechner is there for that. And I think the thing that he imparts to that, that the Montreal studio kind of never could get quite right again, is that Mechner's really good at writing these kinds of, of things and giving them a certain vibe. Uh, and... You know, absent him, things feel a little less magical. Uh, things mm-hmm. things feel a little less little less memorable. Um, but either way, yeah. Like, I, so I do think he had a sort of a second act in his career that that might have might have gone pretty well. But I also don't know. Like, all these guys kind of have like 
they were so early to a, to an industry that like they might all they just be independently wealthy and like yeah it's like such a young age that you could kind of just fuck around after that and prince of persia has been licensed a bajillion like it's been on every so yeah uh, yeah so that, i guess that that could maybe just explain it it's like yeah you strike you strike gold early and then um i would never describe him as coasting like he has remained deeply involved and uh around the the medium but um like didn't Actually, the opposite of coasting, he didn't want to keep making games. He was like, well, he uh, also um, I was reading here because I was trying to figure out his involvement in Sands of Time. Like Ubisoft bought the license to Prince of Persia, but he still owned the property. And so had a lot of creative control and decided to get involved with Sands of Time once he was impressed by like some of the work that Ubisoft wanted to do on one of those games. So and then they were like, we got it from here. Two thrones. We don't need to. We don't need Jordan for the rest of this. Maybe you do, but <laughs> so like the, the thing is, it is like by itself, it's just a, a it's a very cool object. Again, like uh, if you went, if, if this were laid out in a museum, you'd be like, what an incredible museum exhibit. But the thing you wouldn't be able to get is like the ability to stop and linger over all the material that's presented or the ability to go mm-hmm. and just like play I, the games. I've, I've actually said this to to people in, in passing before. I, I, I think that something like this is is in the perfect world where like video the video essay as a the video game criticism video essay at its at its what is the most idealized version of that form is something like this to me where like it is it is incorporated into the experience of play such that like you can extend the actual process of like what does it mean to actually like sit with this particular like when I when I think about a good video essay, I'm like, damn, what I wonder what that would feel to actually play through what is on screen right now. And like I, I really want to actually go back and 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 you know play through this um for for that exact reason. Cause I think this is like an extremely cool format. Uh, the kind of format that you can't do for the vast majority of things, uh, for so many reasons, but like is like a fascinating structural exercise. Yeah, it's and like, I do hope that we get a bunch more of this because uh, obviously, like, you're always in a race with preservationism is always in a race with decay uh, and entropy. And so there's there's a lot of stuff where, you know, a lot of these folks are still around. A lot of these folks are, you know, who were who were involved in the high levels of the stuff are still alive. You can go talk to them. And a lot of them still have like material. Uh, but a lot of early game stuff isn't around or the, or the people aren't around. Uh, and this is an incredible way to, to document a bunch of this stuff. Uh, and, and here's the thing, like I, I like Jordan Mechner and I've, you know, a lot of his games have been hugely influential for me. Uh, Karataka predates me. I'm not, I'm not someone who's like, damn, you know, they don't make them like Karataka came out like before, like when I was two, you know, this is, this is an old ass game. Yeah. Uh, but this is a really compelling presentation and I, highly recommend it because it was like one of those things where uh, I, w- I was saying there was like this is far and away the most interesting thing I've played uh, th- this week this is like the the, the coolest thing I've I, I've uh, you know engaged with and uh, highly recommended on, on those uh, on those merits I mean Jordan Mechner is just a star in his field Yep. And Wait, was is, that a uh, Starfield that was joke? A, that was a segue attempt. I wow. Think. Yeah. Rob, Rob didn't. Rob just like I was trying right to figure out what Rob. you were doing. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I star in his field. Uh-huh. He is. He is. He's a is star that your transition to this? To this? To the Starfield? To the outro? To the so we two can throw it to the That wasn't what I was doing. I was just mm. I was just lobbing a grenade into the podcast, but like that could also be a transition. <laughs> I thought you were like shading him or something. 
Yeah. No, it was not. It was not. Nothing but respect. Uh, I'll just uh, throw in one last thing. I started playing a little Immortals of, of Aeum. Yeah, so did I. I kind of like it, though. I'm so like, I, so I, mean, I, I was like, this is really fun. Rob, I can't wait to revisit that game in December when uh, we're actually going to sit and play the rest of it. But yes, I actually think that game has a better depiction of a city with magic than Final Fantasy 16 does. Dude, I was like, I was sitting there, I was like, this is mismarketed. It's all been like Call of Duty, but Wizards, spell PG. And I'm like, they made a first person Final Fantasy 9. <laughs> like that is the that to me is the closer vibe of yeah it's a real st- like some real storybook fantasy type vibes uh mm-hmm. with some like really cute aesthetic stuff uh and a lot of lovable street well don't get there's some lovable don't get street too attached <laughs> unfortunately that game i saw i mean this stuff's not all uh it's just one data point but you know like in this first week of launch it peaked on steam at pc at less than a thousand oh, concurrent sucks. players so it sucks ah. like i like again the the point like i'm playing i'm like i'm having fun in a way i was not having fun with starfield i'm like <laughs> digging just like the the banter the characters and looking around the goofy ass fantasy setting it's, well it and, sets up its world much better with immediacy in a way that starfield yeah starfield stretching its legs and you're just you know taking a big yawn and whereas that game is right out of the gate is is like hey here's what's cool about this place i have a question yeah much has been said about jack who, as we all know, can control all three kinds of magic. All three, all three, colors all three of kinds, magic. all three colors of magic. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I said <laughs> kinds of magic, and I want to apologize. See, I mean, colors. all three, three colors, colors of magic. magic. <laughs> I've heard that this game's writing is like fine. Like, do you do you like Jack? Do you like yep. when he talks? Good. Yep. That's good. You know what? I'm glad they made one of these quippy guys who people like. What makes him different? Why do you like him? Nothing. Why are his nothing? Well executed. Well like, executed? Here, here's the thing. Like, he is, like, he's a pretty stock character in, right. in a lot of those respects, but he's not grating in the way that a lot of them are. And I think, I think you know, what part of what makes him convincing for me a little bit is that, like, genuinely, uh, he seems kind of touched by the events around him. Like, the quippiness is actually, like, clearly a mask draped over someone who's like got a lot of fear and anxiety about like where he stands in the world what's going to become his friends and so to an extent i think the thing that really works for him is that sometimes you have a quippy character that's like not really in the story yeah where it's like i'm gonna be my own greek chorus and comment on this here it always feels like this is a guy who is trying to mask how much he cares about someone or masks how afraid he is about things through like trying to seem nonchalant but like consistently i just feel like no this guy does feel that there are stakes to the story and that makes it easier for me to feel like there are stakes even if the story is kind of some generic fantasy stuff but hey gina torres is there and (laughs) she's great at this shit great yeah and i and i will also say that like Gina Torres, really good at this stuff, and it feels like we're getting Gina Torres' performance in a way that, like, we didn't just get her voice. We are getting, like, some of her actual, like, mannerisms as a performer. Like, uh, if you're a Suits junkie, like I like I am, like I used to be, 
uh, you're aware that one of the things that, that she's very good at is a character will say something and without saying anything, she will like give a look that lets that character know that they're on thin ice. And in <laughs> fact, maybe there's no there. Maybe the ice is already breaking and they're about to fall through and like does not need to say anything after that. It is just it is a look that like implies an entire visual conversation that happens that then does not require words. And that is in this that is in this performance, like the 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 mocap, whatever they did actually gets at those aspects of what she does as a performer in a yeah, way. That, I think like, I think they actually like, captured all this and yeah. the way you expect from from games this big. I mean, you're aware yeah. of the you joke about the the suit stuff, but like you're aware of like how popular that show became like in the last month and change. Right. I am. I like. I'm a little annoyed that I Recently? like. You know what's weird? Yeah, so I, I mean, this happens have, in television shows. Where, I have like, encyclopedic that- knowledge of that show. I, like, I'm missing my moment. This is my window to like. You want to hear the Rob Zachney suits pod? Let's go. Let's go. I can talk all about Harvey Specter and uh, Jessica Pearson. New Rob Lord just oh dropped. Um, yeah, yeah. So su- Suits is a uh, a USA show that ran for a number of seasons mm-hmm. while they were leaning really hard into producing original programming and had a number of successful like shows like suits that you know this is monk this is the blue sky era. uh it's monk yeah. it's uh burn notice burn notice one. burn notice like all was shows this, kind of come well, from I mean, a similar NCIS sort of cloth kind of forever but but that's on cbs is that, um i guess it must have been yes. syndicated then i remember i remember it popping up on usa a lot or something well usa also the, again yeah. usa is traditionally known as just sort of syndicating other shows right, and right. and movies um and anyway uh one of the powers of netflix having you know, in the U.S. and something like 75 million subscribers is like they can just put something on the front page and it doesn't matter. They don't. Well, a bunch of subscribers are bored. So it's like, right. hey, it's a show we didn't cancel after a year and a year. So like there's the, seven seasons of this. The people, well, most like Netflix is uh, most guilty of this. But in general, they just don't make shows like this anymore that are like light, fluffy, entertaining enough, just enough depth. And that also go on forever like you can just watch and suits blew the fuck up um and has been like the most the biggest thing and i think it's since tailed off but like was the biggest thing on netflix for like a solid month and i'm sure they paid pennies uh for it so a lot um, of people realizing that once they see off daniel hardman there ain't much left of that show (laughs) i can't believe we missed damn you writer strike Rob kept pitching the Suits cast, and we just, we couldn't do it. <laughs> it's not just a show. It's an entire, like, way of life. It's a philosophy. You know, like, real ones know life is this. I like this. I made this a... Is, is that is, my is hand? That's a reference to that? So, uh, is that? That's the, that's the that's Harvey Specter like, quote about, like, why he is the way he is. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Glad but, to be you know, if we were a video <laughs> podcast, that moment would have really landed. Uh, so maybe, maybe actually, Kato, we need to dump these locals and take our take this action straight to Twitch. Oh my god. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, that concludes another episode of Remap Radio. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get in the question bucket, but the question bucket appears to be nothing but HOA emails right now. So it would take me a minute. Also, this episode's gonna be like four hours long. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's the God that's the that's the <laughs> promise. Look, 
Should we split I, them? I up? feel Kato, yes. Maybe, we should. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some. Maybe some of the Starfield talk should go next week. Yeah. As like a like a foundation yeah. thing. Let's talk about know. it afterwards. No, we're not gonna. <laughs> gate, we shouldn't gatekeep it. But uh, or let's we talk time about delayed. it afterwards. Yes, but yes. but either way, like maybe this is two five star for folks. It might Even though I, I think we have been remiss, we haven't been giving people those five star run times. Uh, so maybe this is just four hours is very good. funny though. <laughs> I, I don't know what my computer's gonna do. Oh, we should we should try it though. What's the big deal if it just loses we... all your edits? Well, no, save it. You save it before the export. Yeah. See if you can do it. Yeah. And if you can't, then we'll split it up. I'm, I'm sure sorry, it'll Ren, do before, it. I'm just before, before curious we're going, how long what have you? It takes. What? Ren, these just look like New Balance sneakers. If I'm being quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> these don't look they, they have this these, no are these, armored core vibes are these armored core sneakers yes. Ren, do these feel like armored core sneakers to i you? don't they don't they really they, look like new balance look, made a bunch of ugly shoes and if, they're trying to move them if you look close at the white areas there's like there's these paneling, hexes yeah. that are kind of maybe oh there are there are kind there's of like paneling. something it's all the, but all but those will wear well <laughs> it, it went terribly. The very funny thing is, New Balance was made fun of for being clown shoes for a very long time. Uh, however, there has been a couple of New Balance releases that have been doing okay uh, with with like sneaker freaks, um, and so I think it's very funny to watch like a New Balance attempt to like get back into and it's just, like doing some of their designs are fine, uh, but the New Balance. 2002R's featuring up an armored up python accented with matching tone new buck suede and multi-tone brown canvas base these trainers evoke the beauty and desolation of Rubicon 3 <laughs> shut the fuck up no they don't these are clown shoes <laughs> see the red is like the coral the red the is, red like is the coral. just like the that's not even the color of coral <laughs> I've seen a lot listen I've seen a lot of fucking coral in that game tell me tell me you uh, and these look nothing like the color of coral fuck out of here I can't l- listen. Like I, I should support New Balance because like they're a New England company and all that. But every time I look at them, I'm just like these. Just look, these do not look like particularly fun sneakers. Uh, and they do they do give off strong like. So you just had lower leg surgery and you need <laughs> and you need to wear some special shoes uh, for for your recovery. Uh, is is the vibe they give off. I am begging one publisher or developer to get one good shoe collaboration. I'm still mad about the. Do you see the Destiny shoes? Destiny shoes. has some good ones. All right, Cod, I'll look at your Show me some Destiny shoes. Fuck it, five hours. We can't. We, we can't. We can't do the <laughs> fashion show. No, no, no. no, 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 no it'll just take. It'll just take them one second. We can yeah, do another fashion show. I screen. have it. Palladium. These are okay shoes. Yeah, but they also look pretty conventional. Like they're fine. They're but fine. They they them just boots, you know, with some. They're boots and they business. got the logos on. Yeah, them. these are greebled boots. They're uh, greebled boots, but they're like the better than I feel like the New Balances that already look bad, looking worse. Right. I mean these these are greebled boots and like the current style of 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 greebling. These remind me a lot of the. Um, oh God! It was the. Um, uh, Space Hippie 04s, or maybe the 02s. Mm. Um, these shoes are trash. Uh, they have the, the, the buckle in the middle of those, like really, which was like a, a pretty common design. Oh, uh, 03, I think. Yeah, it's maybe. the 03s. 
um, or what I'm thinking of, because uh, I have the O4s actually. Now that I Whoa, think about whoops. it, uh, and I do not like the O4s. I have them, and I like them. I like them. Okay. Kato pasting the ugliest URL in history <laughs> into our Discord. Uh, I can't I'm handle fixing this. It. Fixing uh, d- it. I sent a stock X URL, which is a different kind of ugly URL, kind of like emotionally ugly Why as opposed the to same physically. URL? Why well, is... if you wear that shoe, everyone will know that you're a star in your field. You can <laughs> our theme music is Moments Pause by Tumelo. You can check out his work on tumelomakes.bandcamp.com. Rob came around. You can came follow around. everything we do at Remap Radio on Twitch, Blue Sky, Twitter, YouTube, Mastodon, and other platforms. Uh, once again, we rely on our audience for support, and you can sign up to become a backer by going to Remap Radio and following the links and instructions you see there. This week, Patreon subscribers uh, got to hear Patrick and I wring our hands about the Chicago Bears without the interruption of ads, uh, which came up, ironically, in discussing the NFL a bit. Uh, your support also lets us set time aside for streaming. This week, uh, Kyle and Ren played more Armored Core 6, and then Patrick and I were able to show off some Starfield. Maybe I'm counting my chickens before they hatch, but I'm, I'm confident those streams, will, those streams will go well. We will be back next week with another episode of Remap Radio. Until then, thanks so much for choosing to spend so much of your time with us, and stand by <laughs> to hear more on Starfield. How much more I couldn't say. <laughs> Just like you couldn't say...